I would like to thank our proprietor, Peter Thompson, who has generously helped fund the William Orville Thompson Endowment, which makes tonight's lecture possible. Our speaker tonight is Noah Wilson-Rich, a biologist, professor, beekeeper, and TV personality, as well as an op-ed contributor to the New York Times and Los Angeles Times, and two-time TEDx speaker. He holds an undergraduate degree from Northeastern University and a PhD in biology from Tufts University. Dr. Wilson-Rich has 20 academic publications to date and has held several adjunct faculty appointments in biology, including at Tufts, Northeastern, and Simmons College. He is a founding partner and current chief scientific officer of the Best Bees Company, a beekeeping service that delivers, installs, and manages beehives for residential and commercial properties nationwide. His book, The Bee, A Natural History, was released in 2014 through Princeton University Press in the United States and Ivy Press in the United Kingdom. Dr. Wilson Rich partnered his national book tour with the expansion of the Best Bees Company across eight cities, meeting with and hiring local beekeepers along the way. Tonight, Dr. Wilson Rich will discuss our future with bees, including ways we can get involved in the preservation of these vitally important animals. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Noah Wilson Rich to the Boston Athenaeum. Hello. Nice to see you tonight. Uh, my name is Noah Wilson-Rich. Thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, thank you to the whole Thompson family. It's a pleasure to be here. And look at this crowd. Somebody's interested in my insect research. <laughs> this is great. So, uh, so beyond being interested, I want to carry each of us together as one, as a social hive, so to speak, uh, to learn a few things, right? In the essence of the Athenaeum, that's what we do here. So uh, tonight we'll put the books down, and although we won't jump into a beehive literally together, I think we'll do some fun exploring from the comforts of your own seat. Got to start somewhere, right? Uh, this is Sophie up here, Sophie Cheney. Does anybody recognize where she's keeping bees? It's very close to here. So it's at the Taj Boston Hotel the end of Newberry Street, 12 beehives. Who would know, right? Many people think of Godzilla or, you know, something. Oh, we're going to get a beehive. Ah, uh, it's a little box, you know. So we'll go through that tonight, and you'll get a bit more familiar not only with bees and the facts. You can go and quiz your friends. Like the first fact, I'll jump the gun. How many eyes does a honeybee have? How many eyes does a honeybee have? Can you yell them out? I'll tell you if I hear it. Nope, 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 nope. A number? It's five. There you go. You've each learned something, I hope, and for you bee experts, we'll go a little further. But even if you fall asleep now, you can quiz your friends. How many eyes does a bee have? All right. Here's the slide I call, Who's This Guy? It's a lot of words, and the slides I'll use tonight will really be a guide, so don't feel like I'll quiz you any deeper than that. But, uh, but I have been uh, teaching around the Boston area for many years now. I've started really fun classes like Introduction to Evolution at Northeastern, where we had a bit of a Darwin book club. We got to sit around in a circle and have debates, you know, very much in that fun college style. Um, teaching doesn't pay a lot. 
right? And it certainly doesn't fund research. So I had to start a couple groups. One is the Best Bees Company. That's how we get more data points out there. We sell beehives. I was finishing up my PhD at Tufts in a very bad economy around 2008, 2009. And I was onto something about bee health. So I don't look at why a dead bee died. I look at why a thriving bee lives. It's a very slight distinction, but it's not as depressing, right? <laughs> and also, I think it's really important because we can learn things about what's harming our Earth, right? But if we don't get some prescription from it, where do we go? So part of my life's work is communicating what I know as a scientist with the general public so that we can actually move things forward. Right. So uh, we started the Best Bees Company in a bad economy. I say we, it was me in my apartment in the South End. I've since had some business training to learn that we're a team, look bigger than one person. So I say we quite often. And, uh, and we are a team now. So what started in my living room in the South End, selling beehives on a Facebook page for free, with my mother hitting like, like... <laughs> My mother's comments only, saying, go Noah, you're doing great, which is wonderful, but wonderful and loving doesn't pay the rent, and it doesn't advance research. So over time, eventually we sold a beehive, and I'd volunteer my time to manage those bees in exchange for some research funding. Again, I made it up, you sell a beehive, you know, use that money to buy some parts, install the beehive, install the bees, and then check in once a month, you get some research funding plus a data point. So to date, we're now nine years into it. We're starting next year. And even since submitting these slides, we've expanded to Pittsburgh in the past two weeks. So it's growing, and we create jobs for beekeepers to work within their own local communities. We also got a fellowship in the past two weeks to create jobs for people over the age of 50 nationwide, right? Become a beekeeper. Sounds kind of nice, right? You'll follow up with me if you want a job. <laughs> so now we've got 65 beekeepers on staff and we've raised over a million dollars for bee research to date. We also started a nonprofit. So that's called the Urban Beekeeping Laboratory. It's a 501c3. And beesanctuary.org is the website there. So if you want bees for yourself, you can go through the Best Bees Company. If you want bees for others, you can go through Bee Sanctuary. That funds programs for beekeeping at schools and libraries. Again, all while giving us data points. And the community keeps all the honey because we get the research that we need. I made it up. It worked. And that's what brought me here today. And I'm so grateful that you're interested. So now that you know who I am, I want to share my vision with you. So I call this whole topic urban agriculture. You can also call it urban ecology if you're not so interested in the food-producing parts of agriculture. But I see a future where we have to find a place to house a growing population. We are adding over a billion people every 20 years. That's another China, another India, multiple times over in our lifetimes. Where are we going to house these people? How are we going to feed them? Can we find a solution, an answer to both of those questions that not only does both feeding and housing, but also improves the quality of life? I think we can. I think it's inevitable. And it's a little more fun if we consider ourselves a part of it. So it starts with something like this. On the left-hand side, you'll see a community garden in Boston. This is in the south end. A basic community garden, right? That's where we are. But on the right-hand side, this could be a community garden in the future. It could be a full urban farm in the future. I don't know, but what I want to ask of each of you tonight is to at least open your minds a little bit to say, that's crazy, something's stacked, if there are cows on level 6 and sheep on level 10. That's crazy. I'm not advocating for that, 
But I wonder if that's an inevitable part of our future. We have to be smarter about how we're using our land. And let's say there's a crazy future where everything is a city, right? If this earth turns into a global city, how will we manage that? So it might have to be things like this, and the least that we can do is just open our minds and say, huh, maybe that's okay, instead of saying no. That's the fun part tonight. So we do a little bit about that. I do a lot of publishing in different areas. Most recently with the MIT Media Lab, we have a lot of fun at looking at different ways to communicate information to the public. So this was an op-ed in the New York Times in 2014 that I wrote, and it was in response to things that I as a scientist knew which was really here that colony collapse disorder had ended in 2011. But the general public did not know this. So colony collapse disorder started in 2006, in my first year of graduate school, and it was identified by beehives that had tens of thousands of bees one day, and then a couple days to a couple weeks later, there would be maybe 10 bees. And one of those would be the queen, the queen mother, right, laying all the eggs, the other bees were vanished, no dead bodies. So it was this kind of CSI, like missing body story, right? The general public got interested. And people would ask me, first year graduate student, what's happening with the bees? And I would just be in the library all day. I said, I have no idea. I don't even know what time it is outside, you know? But it made this program that I was in so much more relevant. And for that, I was really grateful. I was already studying the immune function of honeybees. You know, not the most sexy topic, but it made me an expert at it. And that's what made people want to get involved. How can we help the bees? And I think scientists didn't know how to communicate to the public that in 2011, we didn't see this anymore. We didn't want people to stop caring right, to say this one disease seems to have ended as mysteriously as it began. But what I tried to do here was frame it, to say bees are still dying, we need to still care, we just find the dead bodies now. That was what was changing. Here's a dead body where there wasn't a dead body, so technically this isn't colony collapse disorder if it has a dead body by the definition. So a very simple little scientific definition could have had big effects if somehow people found out and then stopped caring and then we just moved on. Bees are still dying at an alarming rate. So we'll talk about that a little bit tonight, but what we'll focus on more is not how they're dying, but why they're living and where they're living, like in Manhattan. In this image, the highest rooftop beehive is around 72 stories above the ground. Bees are dying, yes, but less so in cities. This was a weird phenomenon that I noticed in graduate school because I lived here in Boston and I was running a beekeeping laboratory out of my living room, <laughs> right? I was doing this weird thing anyway and I told my landlord that I was starting a bee research lab in my apartment. Is that okay? I figure I should let you know. I just felt like I really needed to tell him, you know? And he said, that is so cool. Can we get a beehive in the backyard? <laughs> I was so terrified. I said, what? Yeah, yeah, sure, let's do that. That beehive in the backyard at West Concord Street in the south end between Tremont and Shawmut, that produces the most honey out of any other beehive. Over 100 pounds of honey every year seem to come out of this beehive. We were filling pickle jars. <laughs> Like, where do we put it? And I would say, this should be your biggest problem, right? You have too much honey, right? You give it to your loved ones, and they have too much honey. And you give it to your coworkers and employees. You know, so community honey, it's a big thing. And we're getting more of it in cities. So that's what's focused my team, not to do urban beekeeping because it's cool. We're these hipsters in Brooklyn, and we do cool farming. 
But because it seems to be better for bees, and we need more data points to understand this, right? So I've already taken you from a, like a pretty basic beekeeping thing to a, what? Skyscraper or stinging insects? What are we talking about? So this brings me to my team here. I mean, we've amassed this wonderful team. We started with student interns. So you can go to our website, bestbees.com slash internships, and you can have students really of any age sign up to work with us and do certain research projects that they can design or they can join one of our current ones. We are just now transitioning from MIT's research, from DARPA, the Department of Defense, over to NASA and to Harvard. <laughs> I know how fancy that just sounded, right? I don't know who I am either. But these are things where we need students, right? So anybody can join us who can get college credit or high school credit or even just some sort of advancement. And, uh, and it's a wonderful thing. We hire the best interns as employees, and that's how we've built our company from nothing. The next slide I'm going to show you is another interesting upcoming publication. It is Top Secret. Confidential. If my team knew that I was sharing this with you out of pride, I would get in a lot of trouble. This is a National Geographic's February issue, February 2018. I don't expect for you to see this, so the next two slides will zoom in a little bit. So this is looking at one of our hot new research projects called Honey DNA. So this is a two-page spread from Nat Geo's issue on newsstands January 15th. On the left-hand side, it says a dollop of sweet science. So we look at honey samples samples of honey. You can send this into our lab, kind of like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. We sequence the genome of all the plant DNA in honey, so we identify what type of honey it is. So Nat Geo is just covering this in a two-page spread, a map of the United States, and they've, I guess they cut out the map part. We've had a lot of edits. And they looked at, uh, here it was six different cities. Boston is on the left. What type of honey is Boston honey? This is your second quiz question. You can even think to yourself, if you taste honey from Boston, what plant is that from? Honey is just flower juice. Bees go to flowers, they collect nectar, which is about 90% water, and they take it down to about 18 to 20% water, and they store it for winter or for the rainy season, and it's just flower juice. So all honey comes from a flower. What flower in Boston is honey? Geranium, clover. No, no, but close. Linden, who said Linden? Could you please stand? <laughs> Linden. Thank you, this is great, right? Citizen science. So Boston honey is primarily Linden honey. Linden trees line our streets, right? So city planners, good job. You picked some plants that are good for pollinators. Linden can be identified in the winter time by a nice beautiful shape to them. They're kind of like a, a rounded up shape with the limbs. Um, so check it out next time. And you know, it's kind of fun. Now 2017, we finally know what our food is, right? Linden honey. New York City, it's honey locust as a tree. Uh, uh, rose honey is from Portland, Oregon, which is the city of roses. That's kind of fun, you know? Los Angeles honey, pine pine honey. We found conifers, plants that don't necessarily flower, and that's given us pause to say, hmm, where are pollinators going? Could other plants be benefiting our pollinators as well? We think that it's from honeydew, which is sap that's excreted from the plants, from pine, and then you can have some scale insects, or aphids even, drink up the honeydew and they can excrete it in this sugary liquid that's then collected by bees. So conifer honey can go through nature twice. When I give talks to school groups, like the little boys seem to love that because they think, oh, that's you know, poop and vomit and, you know. 
And Hyde Park, absolutely. Hyde Park has some wonderful honey. The Arboretum can really help improve bee health. What we were doing here is looking at a few things. So not just what type of honey comes from each location, but two other things. That gives us information about what to preserve and what to plant more of. So here on the left is New York, middle is Washington, D.C. Washington is mostly cedar trees, cedar and clover, and then Portland on the right, which was roses, begonia, and sweet chestnut. We're looking at what to preserve habitat here of. So these plants we can preserve, and then we can plant more of them as well. But for us, for our research, we looked at the total number of plant species in a honey sample, and we found an amazing range. We'll get into this a little bit too as we go on with the slides, but I'll just tell you the number of plants in a honey sample tells us how many plants are in a habitat. It's a new way to measure habitat quality, habitat diversity. It's a brand new thing. This also shows us at the top legal beekeeping rules. So for each of these cities, beekeeping is legal. Beekeeping is legal in Boston. Cambridge, Massachusetts is the next city to legalize beekeeping in the United States. It's gone through many years of meetings, and it's not illegal in Cambridge to keep bees. It just hasn't been on the books. It's not legal, it's not illegal, so beekeeping in many cities is a gray area. Part of my life's work is not only to talk to the general public about science, but to advise lawmakers so they don't think wasp, yellow jacket, hornet. Those are meat eaters, and all bees are vegan. <laughs> all bees are vegan. Think about Jurassic Park. If you see the kids petting some dinosaurs, those are the plant eaters, right? A nice brontosaurus compared to the carnivorous T-Rex. You don't see the kids petting those. That's the same thing with bees and wasps, yellow jackets, hornets. So I want to make sure that people understand that these are different things. The biology is so important. Uh, let's see, Los Angeles and Seattle. What was interesting, too, for San Francisco was that it was mostly eucalyptus. That's so neat because it's from Australia. So you really have a unique population and we can understand maybe why weeds are so successful. Bees don't seem to discriminate against native or invasive plants and non-native ones. They seem to prefer anything. It's like a buffet, they'll eat whatever. Their nutrition seems to be better with a more diverse diet. So this is something that we think correlates as what we call the habitat hypothesis for what explains bee health. We think that bee health is better in areas with more diverse plants. We measure that with habitat, um, with honey DNA. So for our business model, I mentioned this, we just started this up while I was in graduate school to connect the research. We've also added some artists to staff, and in the middle are some images from Martha Stewart Living Magazine last April. <laughs> You can design your own beehive on our website for free, you know, at bestbees.com slash shop, and you can have any colors and patterns. So if you're a landscape designer, for example, you can look at your client's garden and think about, okay, well, bees like a certain color of plants, hummingbirds like another color. Maybe I can play around with the beehives and the sculptures and put some life in the sculptures, a beehive as a living sculpture. Here's your next quiz. We're learning things all night tonight, right? So if hummingbirds like red and bees cannot see the color red, then what color do bees like? What color attracts bees? Blue. Raise your hand for blue. Thank you very much. So bees love blue flowers and purple flowers. Bees can see ultraviolet which we mere humans cannot see. 
So it's very fun to think about adding color to your landscapes, to your gardens. Have a cool garden for the bees with blues and purples and even whites that might look ultraviolet to bees. And a hot garden with reds and oranges and yellows for hummingbirds and for people. Those will help pollinators in different ways, right? So we're doing that all week today. I added this slide in here last minute because we're doing a trade show called New England Grows. So we're working with other industries like garden centers and nurseries to communicate to their buyers which plants we find in honey DNA. This plant, for example, holly. If you want to buy a holly tree, as much as 74% of local honey comes from hollies. So to put a little sticker on the plants to let the consumer know and then you can make an educated decision about your plants through science. And we say to them, maybe you can charge a quarter more for this plant. At the trade show today where it opened, they said, no, 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 we won't even charge anything more. I said, okay, that's great. <laughs> so it's fun to look at that intersection. You know, for anybody, especially students who I speak with about who want to start businesses, I point out to them, this sounds like a crazy business, right? I'm starting a beekeeping company. <laughs> but I show them anything you know a lot about as a student, that makes you valuable. That makes you bankable. It makes you a consultant. So when I speak to young kids, you know, even in elementary school, and I say, who's been picked on? Kids raise their hands, and you say, well, if you're picked on for something, maybe you know something a little too much. Maybe you stand out for a certain reason. And as a kid, that makes you vulnerable. But as an adult, that makes you bankable. <laughs> makes you a consultant. If you know too much about Pokemon, well, and somebody asks you a question, charge them, you know, a dime for the answer, and you're in business. <laughs> So we do that, the business model, we've been bootstrapping. So, you know, it's successful and it's scalable and it's something that we think will really be a mainstay going forward. We've started expanding this to look not only at the beehive, like here is Paige Mulhern, she's our creative director. She paints the outside of beehives. <clears throat> She will also look at the habitat around the beehives and do watercolor illustrations of the plants that bees go to. So through art, we're communicating what the honey DNA plants are to the public. We're also really still working with the mainstream media. Bee deaths are a huge problem. They have been increasing steadily since 2006, just from different diseases. So different diseases include varroa mites, and we have a fungal infection too of their guts. So diseases are one. The second of three things killing bees is pesticides, fungicides, and herbicides as a class. Those are ag agricultural chemicals. And the third thing of three killing bees is habitat loss. So changes in land use. You know, if you're building a structure and you don't replace the land, then that land is lost. Right now in China, IKEA and Walmart are looking at replacing the, the lost ground with green rooftops. They're doing that in Chicago as well as Portland. So even Walmart has four locations with a green rooftop now because the government makes them do so, Chicago and Portland. So it's another thing to advise economies on, right, if you can replace habitat. And then with us, we see it as if you can advance it to include food-growing habitat to feed people that insulates the building as a next-generation green rooftop, and we're all working together with urban ecology. The other change in land use has really been looking at changed farming practices. After World War II, we started going away from diverse farms with carrots and peas and cows and mixed things to monoculture crops. That loss of diversity seems to be correlated with decrease in bee health as well. So if somebody quizzes you for what's killing the bees, three things, diseases, agricultural chemicals, and habitat loss. What we look at is actually changing that perspective. So instead of looking at what's killing bees, we're first looking at which of our client beehives are doing the best. We currently manage 700 beehives across 16 states. 
So each client, Beehive, you know, it's a data point. So we look at hotspots on a map for bee health. Places like Boston, this is a Beacon Hill client looking through her skylight. You can see if the bees are flying. I did this this morning. I looked at my backyard, same place where I started the company. The bees were flying. That told me it was over 40 degrees this morning. I don't need a really heavy coat. So if you can see the bees from your window, it can be really fun, actually, especially if you don't want to get too close to them. You know, you can look safely through the window. The Museum of Science, we do their observation beehive behind glass. We also have data sensors in there so that kids can see on an iPad a temperature and humidity chart coming from the beehive. This adds, adds value to their exhibit so the kids don't just bang on the glass. They can see what numbers are coming from there. So we look at places where bees are doing well. This is another client out in Weston in the middle with blue beehives with a copper trim to match her home. So we can really try to use art to integrate pollinators into our everyday life, and it benefits our research so very much. We're looking at what is different in those three things that are killing bees to see if that could be saving them. So instead of looking at why a bee died from a pesticide, we can look at things like their ability to communicate as a society and see what their communication systems look like. So on the left-hand side, if anybody's seen a swarm of bees, it's kind of what we're doing tonight, gathering together, right? We're very closely packed, and you're listening intently to one person or one bee speaking. Now, bees communicate through dancing. So if we were bees, you would be quiet, as you are now, and you would listen to me dance, the waggle dance. Nobel Prize winning research by Carl von Frisch in the 1970s, this dance communication language, what bees do is they will have one bee go out to forage looking for a flower patch if it's food or a home to live in if it's for a new place to live. One, play, one way in which bees are different from humans is that when the young get older, the adults have to go, right? Imagine if you have kids and your kids turn 18 and then you have to move. <laughs> That's a little strange, but bees have been around for 100 million years, and I find it very fascinating to understand their societies. This is what got me interested in bees, not only how they communicate, but how they stay healthy without doctors, hospitals, nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacies. How do they stay healthy for 100 million years, living in such complex societies that they're literally hanging off of one another? And what can we learn from them and from their health to better our own human health? That's what got me interested in them. This communication system is so interesting, and looking at these graphs based off of Tom Seeley's research, we were talking about him earlier. <clears throat> when the bees come back from foraging, I keep pointing at that. Let's see, I've got a handy pointer here. Mm, no, that makes it point. There we go. So uh, the bees will dance here, and when they do a waggle dance, they'll do it in a particular direction to point towards where the habitat or the garden in bloom is. Would you like to see the waggle dance? Yes. I have to dance for you to put it in context. Learning can be fun, right? So when I dance, it's a figure eight. I have to shake my butt a little bit. It's going to be embarrassing. But I'm going to waggle in the direction of where the new house that I want us to move to is or where there's a nice flower bloom because we're going to have a nice lunch, right? I'll do it in that direction. It's going to be outdoors. So I'll do the waggle dance in the direction of the windows, right? Very quick, weird dance. Thank you. And what happens is they recruit each other. 
So they're building a quorum. They're having an agreement. So for any of you, maybe closer, who saw me waggle, you might go verify, okay, there's some flowers in that direction. I'm going to check them out. I'll be right back. If you find the flowers are there and my signal is true, you'll do the same dance. And then others will see, oh, these two bees are saying there's something there, and we will recruit. And so here is a time-lapse study. And the directions are where the different bees said there's flowers over here or over here. The width of the arrow is the number of bees doing that waggle. So that over three days, they eventually reached a quorum. They said, we're going to move over there. What we found in my research lab in partnership with the Department of Defense, which is crazy, uh, is that bees that are sick do not waggle as much at all. They don't communicate very well kind of relates to people. If you're sick, you're not going to go to work or to school. We're going to take a time out, right? So we're seeing how diseases affect and break down these communication systems. And we're focusing on these initial three hypotheses for what's killing bees to see what's different about what's saving them. Specifically, is there less disease in cities or areas where bees do well? Are there less pesticides in cities? Or is the habitat better? Those are specific things that we look at, and we've made some really great progress, and I'm excited to share it with you tonight. We understand at this point that bees are pollinators. They bring us food, right? But a quick introduction, if you want to dance later, you can, but you can also pollinate a flower. So here's a little image of pollination. When you have one flower on the left, it has male and female parts. You get allergic to the pollen, and a bee moves pollen from one flower to the next. Makes an apple. Pollen is plant sperm. When you have allergies, you're often sneezing because of plant sperm. I know this is a little too intimate to discuss right now, but that's where fruit comes from. Fruit come from flowers. Vegetables come from any other part of the plant. So the stem, the roots, the leaves, those are vegetables. Things that come from flowers come from, um, or fruit are things that come from flowers. Many of them come with bees. So we talk a lot about the relationship between bees and people. We get this. I don't have to detail it too much. And we understand now that there's a value to looking forward in terms of urban beekeeping. So you can communicate this to companies. And we know that it's really important because we have a growing population. Okay? So you guys are experts and advocates for this. This is kind of the big buildup for the, the data dump. This is my favorite slide to share as we're moving ahead with this research, looking at what cities look like currently on the left, which is New York City, to what cities will start to look like inevitably on the right. It's an image of New York City with these green rooftops. Chicago, as I mentioned, they've already started to require green rooftops, and there are reports that the temperature of Chicago has come down by two degrees in the summertime. So imagine if we could advance these green rooftops to food-producing units. And if you had residents come and do the gardening and the growing too, it's an engagement opportunity as well. A really famous example looking at the history of urban agriculture comes from New York City. A fellow named Adam Purple, it's a great name, did guerrilla gardening. This is what we based our nonprofit program off of. Guerrilla gardening is when he went into an abandoned lot in the Lower East Side in the 1970s, and he did some beautiful landscape design with color, and it was a really wonderful way to revitalize the neighborhood. The lesson here is that the city then bulldozed it in 1974. The importance of having to work with government and with the general public about this. Our nonprofit with bsanctuary.org is looking at how we can work with cities and revitalize the habitat, whether it's through an urban farm or urban beekeeping, to get more food production going, but also to draw in some tourism dollars. If you've ever been to Kuchenhof, 
in Holland, in Amsterdam, in tulip season, you'll understand what I'm talking about. When people travel to your city for the agriculture, for the flowers, New Orleans, Detroit, places that have a lot of money or that have recently been devastated, Houston, you can quickly revitalize a neighborhood while also helping bee pollinators. Um, I'm going to show you some really fascinating data here that are involving art with our science in terms of the urban beekeeping effect. This is what we started to notice. In terms of honey production, urban beehives, which is this honey jar on the left, are producing more honey than suburban, which is in the middle honey jar, compared to rural beehives on the right. On average, we've seen this trend every year since we started collecting data eight years ago. We're also looking at different metrics, like elevating height off the ground. Now you can see this is a science graph versus the previous one, which was an infographic. So the value of artists to our laboratory is incredible. This is on pages to-do list. But this is looking at height off the ground. So the wide bar here, this is the sample size, how many beehives were on the ground. This one was right on the ground level. This one was one to 10 feet off the ground. The skinnier the bar, the smaller the sample size. And the black bar is the overwintering survival, how many beehives survived the year. What the point of this graph is showing here is that beehives higher up do better. The higher up the beehive, the healthier the bees in terms of their beehive lifespan. This one is 10 to 50 feet off the ground compared to on the right, 50 plus feet off the ground. We're seeing an elevation effect. This is terrifying for people like me who are scared of heights, right? <laughs> so if the stinging insects don't get you, then the heights might get you, and apparently there are actually a lot of spiders on skyscraper rooftops. There's an existing ecology up there that we need to, at minimum, notice. I'm not saying be comfortable with the spiders and the bees on the skyscraper rooftops, <laughs> but it's happening. Right? And we've got to, at minimum, notice this and say, what is that? Are there really Spider-Men spiders that are going between the buildings with their silk? It seems as though, yes, crazy, right? And it seems as though bees do best there, too. So that's why we keep going to skyscrapers across 10 cities and putting beehives there to see how much honey do they produce compared to ground-level beehives in the city, in the suburbs, and in rural areas to get more data on what we're observing. So combining them, this is what my first TED Talk was about. So check out TED.com, Why Cities Need Healthy Bees, uh, was the title. This overwintering survival and the honey yield are the two big metrics that we found. There's also a group out of England that found more bee species in at least four cities in the UK compared to their nearby countryside. So bee biodiversity is greater in cities as well as a third metric. So field trip to the bee sanctuary. This is our first site in the south end of Boston. <clears throat> we put beehives here in the parking lot of an auto body shop to study things. You're welcome to visit. The Boston Center for Education offers a class that I teach. It's a nice uh, date night class because you can harvest honey with your honey, you know, while, <laughs> while building beehives. And uh, depending on the season, we can do beekeeping on these elevator lifts. These are car lifts, hydraulic lifts. We keep the beehives overhead and lower them when it's time to work them. Very strange, I know, but we bring sick beehives here from the field and they tend to get better on their own. There's something about the city, something about the South End, something about Harvard Square too that seem to be very good hotspots for bee health. That's what we've been measuring. And I always think, oh, Harvard, like of course they're the ones with the healthy bees, you know? <laughs> But Harvard has at least four different beekeeping clubs on campus and they don't know about each other. <laughs> So these are things we do with schools a lot. 
and we're innovating. We're looking at different ways to calculate health. We're looking at ways to collect data. This is uh, from a patent filing that we had that is called the Smart Hive. So to put data sensors in a beehive, beehives are stacked boxes. So if you were to get a beehive at your home or at your business with the Best Bees Company, we would bring you boxes. It's a two by three foot space. The footprint is the same, but the height changes. We'll add boxes as the season progresses, meaning as bees are making and storing honey, we'll add maybe two to three boxes high up to waist height. And in the winter, we'll take a box down. But that design hasn't changed since a man named Langstroth patented it in 1852. So since 1852 to 2017, he got it right. It's the same design. So adding data sensors seems to be a way that we can improve without changing the Langstroth design. What this does is uh, advances where we're going to be going for beekeeping as humans. So we're looking at a social component. We can measure things like temperature, humidity. We can have the beehive phone us, email us, or text us <laughs> if the temperature drops or if the humidity spikes. We can also have the beehives talk to each other and say there's a cold front coming in, close the door. We can have the beekeeper be notified if there's a plague of disease coming or if there's a pesticide spray. We even think about if R2-D2 from Star Wars and a beehive were to have a baby, what would that look like? And we think that's the future of beekeeping. If there's a pesticide spray at the wrong time, the beehive can just close up and run away. You might see it running down the road. It would help the bees, right? So those are things that we're looking at, how we can improve. Now, in terms of bee health data, the first of three studies that I'll talk about here, this one was done with the Harvard School of Public Health, Alex Liu's lab. We collected pollen from beehives around Massachusetts. This is called a pollen trap. This is a beehive. At the entrance to the beehive is a little drawer, so bees walk over that, and then the pollen falls off their back legs into the drawer, and you can just collect some. We would send it to Harvard for analysis of pesticides. And we were looking at how many pesticides are found in beehives across Massachusetts. We thought that there would be less pesticides in Boston, right? If bees are doing great, if the pesticide hypothesis is supported, then there will be less pesticides in areas where bees are doing well. Here's how to read this. The size of the pie relates to the total amount of pesticides found in that county. There's one pie chart for each county of Massachusetts that was sampled. Not all counties were included because there weren't enough beekeepers to participate, but this was a citizen science project. We thought that Suffolk County, which is this orange pie here, that's where Boston is, right? That's where we are. We thought that would be the smallest pie, thinking there are the least amount of pesticides if the absence of pesticides might explain why bees are doing great, right? Many people are very adamant about neonicotinoids. I certainly am. This is a type of pesticide that's very harmful to bees. Many pesticides are harmful to bees, yes. But we're not studying that. We're not looking at what's killing bees. We're looking at what's saving them. So if we took all pesticides off the shelves, would that magically save all the bees? If we took pesticides off the shelves, we would have the smallest pie chart in the areas where bees are doing best. We don't see that. The pesticide hypothesis, meaning if there are no pesticides, then bees will just do better, that's not supported by our data. In fact, bees are doing really well in areas where there are a lot of pesticides. <laughs> this is controversial. I'm not pro-pesticide, right? These are just what our data are showing, and we don't have money from any outside funders like Bayer or Monsanto or anything like that. Right? But this has been published right, with, with Harvard. So what we're looking at here is another view of the data. We see month of the year, these uh, pollen samples were collected in 2013. 
So April, May, June, July, August. And then we have the, the county along here, and then you have the pesticide concentration of imidacloprid, one particular type that's commonly associated with bee death. So in terms of the height, we see the tallest bar that says the number one hit of pesticides in the entire study was in the month of July. Oh, in Suffolk County. The Fairmont Copley Plaza Hotel, Beehive, had the biggest hit from the entire study. So let's recap. This is very typical for my PhD career and even my professional career. When I have a prediction for a hypothesis, not only do it, it tends to be wrong, but the opposite is true, which is still a finding, right? Again, I am not saying pesticides are good, but what I am saying is that the absence of pesticides alone does not explain where bees are doing best. Moving on, okay? One of the big things that we've been talking about certainly is um, with Peter, he's been beekeeping for 27 years here, is how things have changed. We're looking at the spread of varroa mites. This is now the disease hypothesis that we're testing next. Varroa mites are a, a vector of disease, kind of like mosquitoes are. This tracks their spread since the early 1900s. So right now at the top right, it's the year 1955, 1959, the varroa mite went to China, 1961 to India. And with it came many other infectious agents, bacterial infections, fungal infections, viral infections. It's like the floodgates of disease opened and really caused problems for beekeepers in these countries. So now we're 1979 in Italy, 1980, it's filling out South America. 1987, boom, wait, doom, there you go. <laughs> 1987 is when the viral mite came to the United States. And that's when the game changed. Many beekeepers began to give up around 1987 because the varroa mite came. And it's still the biggest pest for the beekeeping industry today. It's a terrible problem and a terrible plague, right? We have not found any less levels of disease in the city or in areas where bees are doing better compared to areas where bees are not. There are diseases everywhere. So I won't show you other data slides for bee disease in this talk, but I will tell you that disease is everywhere and it doesn't explain where bees are doing best. There are no lower levels of disease in areas where bees are doing better. That's not to say if you're a beekeeper, if you have an individual beehive, you still want to treat for disease. So you really want to make sure you're going through your beehive. If you want a beehive, you need to go to beekeeping school or hire a beekeeper. You have to manage your beehive, check against varroa mites, look at all levels of diseases too. So we've ruled out that hypothesis for what explains bee health. Recapping before the grand reveal, we've got three things that are killing bees. What are those? Pesticides. Yep, pesticides, diseases, and habitat loss. Great. And uh, Ben Oldroyd wrote a wonderful paper in 2007. It's only four pages. I love to share it. So shoot me a note, and, uh, and we'll share that paper with you to read. What's killing American honeybees? Now, in terms of those hypotheses, what's different, where bees are doing well? Well, so far we don't think that it's pesticides here. In fact, there seem to be more pesticides where bees are doing well. We don't know about diseases. That seems to be everywhere. So the absence of diseases is not uh, what explains where bees are doing well. Here, in honey DNA, we have a new measure for habitat diversity. So we're calling this the habitat hypothesis, and we're bringing Paige, our creative director, back in to do illustrations of what plants are good for bees. So here's a red clover. Trifolium is the genus. Clover honey, that's something we're very familiar with. Now, through honey DNA, we sequence the plant DNA genome to find out how many different plant species
species there are and what the breakdown of that honey is. So we're looking at the total number of plant species and we communicate things like linden on the left. So this is what Paige returned to any of our Boston samples that tested positive for linden, also common in New York City. And then on the right, we're looking at the total number of plants. How big is that pie? We predict that pies will be larger in areas where bees are doing better. There will be more plant species, more plant diversity, better habitat in areas where bees produce more honey, in areas where beehives live longer, and in areas where there are more bee species. Not rocket science, but we call it the habitat hypothesis. And it's kind of fun because we now know Boston has 411 different plant species in Boston honey. This came from my house, actually, when I was living in Dorchester. One taste of Boston honey has 411 different flavors to it, right? It is complex. It's amazing. Honey that's very cheap on the shelves is often not really honey. Beekeepers will sometimes feed bees with sugar water. Uh, this was found to be in Chinese honey, and for a while it might even still be happening. You can fact check me here, but Chinese honey was banned in the United States because it was found to be adulterated. High fructose corn syrup can be fed to bees. So it's honey, yeah, right? You've tasted honey, that's plain, whatever, but have you tasted really flavorful local honey that's from your own you know, property or somewhere else? Water lily was found in Boston honey. We think that during the drought two years ago, bees were going to water plants. And so the arboretum has some really wonderful uh, species of, um, uh, of water lily. So we analyzed this. Jamaica Plain has 255 different species. So, so that's right here. And water lily seems to be a really big source of that. Beacon Hill. What kind of honey is from Beacon Hill? It's really fun how you can zoom in. Well, I kind of told you because it's up on the slide, but it is clover honey. We're finding some wonderful clover honey here in Beacon Hill. You also got some water lily. So here we're looking at the data. Water lily in 9.3% of the honey is from clover, and then 7.19% is from water lily. You're also getting apple trees and some pine trees, so that's that honeydew. So we're understanding the makeup, and you have 205 different plant species here on Beacon Hill that feed bees. You can keep that number in mind, 205, that's what we're really getting at. So Dorchester, 411, Jamaica Plain, 255, Beacon Hill, 205. Those are the urban measures. Let's go to the suburbs. Medfield, anybody been to Medfield? It's a beautiful place. Medfield was holly honey and American dogwood honey. They have 136 different plants. So remember this number. This is our prediction. We predict that in the city there'll be more plant diversity, and we have a unique way to measure it through honey DNA and genomics. So, so far we see in one suburban town less, about half of that, 136 plant species in suburban honey with this beautiful image of holly. This was our, our company Christmas card last year. Newport, beautiful place. What type of honey is Newport honey? Privet. Privet is common for hedges, hedge honey. Here's the most controversial comment of the night. Don't trim your hedges to save the bees. Do you think people in Newport want to hear that? <laughs> right? I'm going to get egged off the stage to throw tomatoes at me. So it's hedge honey. How fun is that, right? 30.97% of honey comes from, and Newport comes from privet. They also have some hibiscus, which is fun. So 118 plant species are in Newport. Right? So I call this a manicured town. Towns that are very manicured with lawns or very thoughtfully controlled reduces plant diversity because you don't have as many weeds coming up 
right? Again, I'm not advocating for weeds or advocating for you know less manicured towns. I'm just commenting on what the data show. Let's return to Cambridge, right? So looking back here, we've got linden tree honey from Cambridge, and we have 192 plant species. It's a good diversity. Duxbury, beautiful town, right? I love Duxbury. We have so many beehives in Duxbury. Our clients love it. It is so manicured, right? So manicured. 52 is the number there, plant species. So we say 52 plant species in manicured or rural habitat. Combining all of these, it's our preliminary study, but we have for rural, suburban, and urban. These are our measures here. And we see that there's more plant diversity in urban habitats. They have more plants in their honey DNA. 411 is now the record. And, uh, and so far, the statistics do show it's a significant difference. So we have what we call a leading hypothesis for what's correlated with bee health. It all comes down to this one message of plant a flower, which is exhausting for an entire career, right? That'll be the one thing my gravestone says. Here lies Noah, here lies Noah plant a flower you know, to save the bees. So what I'll do next is a book and a publication. Just as in the New York Times, when May Berenbaum published in 2007 the announcement of colony collapse disorder, I published a bookend in 2014 to say it's done, but we should still care. So with Ben Oldroyd, who published this What's Killing American Honeybees around that same time, looking at these three leading hypotheses, I can flip that. So what's saving American honeybees? And it seems as though this habitat hypothesis might be supported. And it's really fun because anybody can get together and create more habitat. We can do it on rooftops. We can do it in guerrilla gardening style. If there's an abandoned site, you know, what's the worst that could happen, right? It gets bulldozed or somebody yells at us for planting bulbs somewhere. But we can do this through our nonprofit with Bee Sanctuary, and we can scale this anywhere around the world that can revitalize cities and economies. It's been a lot of fun. This is some uh, imagery that I'll end on here in Pasadena. We've started installing and maintaining pollinator habitat. So pollinator habitat growing boxes are a fancy marketing term you know, for roof garden. But research has found that millennials especially want to work and live in sustainable places. So if all else is equal and there's a real estate option for where you work or live and one place has a rooftop beehive or rooftop pollinator habitat, people will choose that one. So many of our clients nationwide are commercial and residential real estate because they make money when their tenant occupancy goes up and then they can sell at a profit. And then we have to collect the bees and then move on, move on there. Um, it's been a lot of fun, this whole urban beekeeping thing. This is a residential site, all pollinator habitat. We're looking at the results from honey DNA from within your own community and then planting more of those and focusing on edibles so that it feeds everybody, right? I mean, it's not rocket science, but this is the first way that we can connect with the general public while collecting more data. So government partnerships have been key. I shared with you, bsanctuary.org is our nonprofit website. That's on the left. We've been working with the city of Boston to pilot this program. The city of Boston has about 1,000 parcels of land that are abandoned or foreclosed upon that are sitting in their Department of Neighborhood Development inventory. The city doesn't want to be in the real estate industry, but they are. That's what they do, right? So for their abandoned lands, we said, why don't we make them pollinator habitat? Let's turn them into small urban farms. We'll make them profitable for the community farmers, and we'll put our beehives there, and it's community honey, right? And it's a nonprofit sponsorship program. So Science is funded by, you know, State Street. We were talking about how wonderful State Street is, you know, so uh, a nice way to communicate and to combine forces. We've done this at five sites so far, and it's been very successful. I'll point out this very special tree in the top right. It's called the Tree of 40 Fruits. Through this awesome process of grafting, 
you can have one tree that feeds all pollinators here, right? They love going to stone fruit trees, but it produces different fruits on different limbs. Grafting, right? It's cool. It's cheap. I mean, it's something that there's education for, but you engage the community, and then you're activating these abandoned spaces in ways that could lead... Yeah, different fruits on one tree. And then you can even have some tourism come in to revitalize neighborhoods anywhere. So it's one of the things we've been doing from a grassroots approach. We started a, a hashtag called Next Gen Beekeepers to engage young people like Chelsea and Rob McFarland who have now married and uh, they have a child, a little beekeeper. The child is not named Beatrice, but I have a niece named Bee. You know, and our clients own all the honey, and that's been something, too, that seems to really have uh, be why people get a beehive or get a beekeeping service. You can package it up in little ways, and they make really good gifts. Uh, Martha Stewart Weddings featured us as a nice wedding gift, you know, for a little sustainable honey. The real estate market will do this instead of business cards, like Home Sweet Home. So the little small jar of honey, people remember that. Fenway Park is a really cool place that has beehives now. So they've had bees for a few years on Fenway Farms. You can see these beehives on the bottom left right here. You know, they're painted green, and uh, in partnership with many different companies across the nation, they all have beehives. So this is something that we're looking to scale. My goal is to continue scaling over the next 12 months, looking to get more data, looking to publish more. Um, and, uh, and it's something, whoops, I guess you can see that. It's something that um, we really want to engage people with. So I want to just fast forward a little bit here. Uh, and just to finish off with showing you some more pictures, and then we'll take some questions as well. This was one property across from South Station where we started with Beacon Capital Partners. So two beehives on the rooftop. You can see how that looks. It's very common around Beacon Hill. We have many residential properties with beehives. Um, and Harvard Business School right here, crimson red window on the beehives, and you can look out on the beehives from inside at a very safe distance through two panes of glass, and that co-working essence of a society getting along seems to be a great place to have a meeting. There's a small business team with students that's meeting in front of the beehives, right? Collaboration, innovation, you know. Uh, here in Denver, this is uh, our Denver team on the left. They, um, uh, the Wells Fargo Tower, it's the tallest building in Denver. It has the cash register look to it. They've had beehives there. This was at my old deck in Dorchester that had the 411 plant species. We painted it very fun colors, so you just have fun with it. You can use the rooftop to put more plants there as well. The Taj likes a, a combination of green and solid uh, wood beehives here. Beautiful view of us right now, if you can see in that photo, looking right out to the Athenaeum. This is the tallest rooftop farm in Boston. We installed it this year at uh, the Christian Science Plaza, formerly known as. That's 177 Huntington, this famous IM Pay building. So uh, at the top there, we've got five raised garden beds, three beehives, and there's even um, a bird of prey nest up there, which is really awesome. Uh, we've covered the nonprofit part, um, and I'm going to kind of push out here to the very end. This is our Cape House, the Beekeeper's Treehouse. The Four Seasons, where you can see on the rooftop, they have their green beehives. Sometimes people have tweeted about our beekeepers on the rooftop, saying, I wish we could work outside. So it's kind of fun. Um, and uh, again, we're trying to create jobs for older folks as well. Um, let's, let's go out to here. You can customize the pictures of the honey with your own logo. Um, and close your eyes as I skip up here. 
Um, but I want to leave you on this one here with Sophie. So uh, Sophie is the beekeeper who we started this from. These are also images of the Taj beehives here. And uh, I want to leave it on this one with our contact info on the bottom right. So uh, we'll be doing a book signing outside. And if you would like a consultation for beehives on your rooftop in Beacon Hill or even in Chappaquiddick or anywhere else you might be at uh, across 16 states, you can reach out to us at bestbees.com. Thank you so much.